Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Rob Burley, who has produced some of the biggest political TV shows uh, of the era. The Daily Politics, The Sunday Politics, This Week, uh, Politics Live, uh, The Andrew Neil Show, The Andrew Marr Show, all sorts of things. And he is obsessed with long-form political interviews. So this was the natural place for him to come and have uh, a long chat. And he's got a new book out, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? 25 Years of Searching for the Truth on Political Telly. I've put the link to that in the blurb so that you can just click on that and buy it. Um, But this is a a really good mix of personal insight and and just how long-form political interviews in this country... Well, firstly, there are very few of them, but we talked specifically about Andrew Neil interviewing Boris Johnson in 2019 and just the planning that goes into an interview like that, but also the role of the producer and whether they speak to Andrew Neil in his ear. And if so, when and what do they say? And are short interventions better? Are long interventions better? Have you pre-prepared stuff? This is a really good uh, inside story of the mechanics of televisual political interviews but Robbie's also obsessed with the history of political interviews and the reason why there aren't really um long-form political interviews on television so uh, this is a, a real mix of brilliant stories particularly about Thatcher and Brian Walden but also his personal experience of working with Andrew Neil, Andrew Marr and various other uh, top-ranked talents he also worked uh, with Beth Rigby on Sky News so there's a whole load of um, context about various interviews and it, it, this is just absolutely superb so um, if you want to buy the book and it sounds fantastic you can click on the link um, either way enjoy Rob Burley and of course the next live show of the political party is on Monday the 5th of June with Philip Hammond the former Chancellor getting his view on the last few weeks months and years in the Tory party will be absolutely unmissable it's no secrets at all he was, I think it's fair to say, Johnson sceptic. So his take on what's happened to Boris Johnson since, what it was like being a Tory MP during that period where friends of his were losing the Tory whip and then going through the Liz Truss experience and now the Rishi Sunak experience. That is absolutely unmissable. And then on Monday the 19th of June, a very rare treat, Margaret Beckett, the first woman to ever lead the Labour Party. And of course, Labour's never elected a woman leader, but Margaret was the first woman to lead the party after the sad death of John Smith. So, I mean, Margaret is one of those people whose career has spanned eras. You know, the the context she can give, the the different periods of Labour history that she's lived through and played a leading part in. There's really no one else around in the Labour movement that has that breadth and depth of experience. That would be incredible. And on Monday, the 3rd of July, Joe Lysett, uh, who uh, is, of course, uh, as well as being a phenomenal comedian, a, a prominent political activist. And then on Monday, the 2nd of October, Jason Williamson, the lead singer of the Sleaford Mods. Anyway, I'll shut up about future shows now. Enjoy Rob Burley. 
delighted to be joined by Rob Burley, yeah. who's worked on many shows um, that many listeners to this show will, will be huge fans of, most famous for his work on The Andrew Marr Show. Rob, you've worked on various shows that involve interviewing politicians and holding them to account. What was it that made you want to be in that line of work? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think I think I got I think I got excited about politics on television when I was a kid, and which is which is a bit weird, right? I mean, I mean obviously the convention that's a bit weird, but for me it was just I was growing up in the seventies uh, in an isolated like kind of. My parents weirdly moved to from the north of England to, the, to West Sussex um, and decided to try and go self-sufficient, like the goods in the good life. What? Um, and I know. And um, my mum was a, my mum was a nurse. She carried on working. My dad was a teacher, and he stopped. And he started. He was just up the garden the whole time, trying to make it work. And I was just sort of with in the house with the black and white telly. Um, and back in those days, until like 1982, you had three channels. Um, and I so I, I ended up watching a lot of politics because there wasn't really anything else else to watch at certain times of the weekend, like Weekend World, um, which was this. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about, you know. But it was like a it was just a kind of impenetrable thing. But it but something important was happening. I could tell that. Um, and I think that's kind of what gave me the bug. Also, I came from a Labour family um, and I cared about who won. Right. So, you know, I was quite interested in how they won and, and how they got on when they were interviewed on telly. I mean, I remember Kinnock in um, 87, I think it would have been. With, it's in the book with David Frost when he's in sort of possession of a bit of a dud defence policy, as you may recall. And he got into a lot of trouble by what sounded like. A sort of policy position which was that look if if they if the russians invade us it'll be like a dad's army we'll we'll we'll, we'll fight them in the streets you know all that's that was how it was interpreted he, he claims he didn't mean it like that and in fact if you read it it's as a lot with a lot of kinnock it's quite hard to understand what exactly he's saying but um anyway the point about that was it sort of showed to me the significance of that because he never really recovered and it was all over the papers and you know so i i think i was just really interested in getting involved in that process from that point onwards and just with your mum and dad moving and doing that was that around like the winter of discontent was that a reaction to the economics of the time or were they had they always been hippies and that was something they were always going to do not hippies my dad was born in 28 my mum was born in 32 they were not hippies they were like people of the 50s growing up they were they weren't they weren't like that it was it might i think there's a sort of deeper thing which is probably my dad was a socialist you know he was Yes, it was a bit of an apologist for Mao until quite until quite late on, you know. Because oh if you were, well, if you were twenty one in nineteen forty nine, was it forty nine? If you're twenty one in the late forties, then for a bit it seemed quite seductive that you know, like a there's been a revolution and there's like an agricultural economy and all that stuff. And so I think he was into that maybe. Maybe that was the root of it. Um, he wasn't. He was a lovely man. He wasn't a Maoist really remotely. But um, he. Um, so I think that must have been what got him into the idea. I think he. Un, un, Unusually in their relationship, he drove that one and got what he wanted, um, which was to have a go at this. <laughs> but um, and that's what we, that's what we tried to do. So it was it was a strange existence. Uh, strange in the sense that you're just trying to grow your own food all the time, or in, in other ways. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not, well, lots of ways. I mean, they were quite they had their own particular, you know, idiosyncrasies. But um, you know, part of it was it was it was it was it was. We lived in the middle of nowhere, so we lived in the middle of a field and in, a, in a, a cottage that they'd renovated, which had been ruined. And they, um, you know, and this was before the before the days of kind of doing that on telly and it being a fashionable thing. They just did it up, and and it was just a very they just they were quite insular in the way that they interacted with the world. So we were quite isolated, but they were lovely. They were wonderful. They were into books, they were into politics, they're into all these things. But um, they just didn't really they weren't very interested in the rest of the world really. 
So I was going to school, but I wasn't really, you know, I lived a bit, it was a bit of an isolated sort of like upbringing in that way. And is that, is it not just perhaps their left-wing politics that influenced you, but also what got you into telly was it was even more of an escape for you than say the average child, because in an isolated existence, that's even more of a window into the world. Totally. That's exactly right. And there's two things, right? The Beatles was a window into the world because that's the only album we had that was that was not classical music. And the other way into the world, the other way into the world was the television and politics for some reason got me going because I felt I understood there were some values at stake. My dad talked about these things and all that. So yes, absolutely that and I'm and you know what? I mean, I'm really grateful for that. I think I think actually we we sort of benefit from having those what feel like privations at the time. In fact, it was it was fine, you know, I had nothing to complain about. And actually, it wouldn't. I would have been a different person if they hadn't made that choice, you know. And actually, I'm happy I did do that. But it's it, the, the weird ways in which it feeds through in your life is kind of interesting. And then when you're at the BBC, I mean, obviously, depending on who you talk to, it's either you know the bastion of the liberal elite, or it's a revolving door between the top of the BBC and number ten and donations to the Tory party and whatever else. It, it's sort of seen at the moment really as a, a, an organisation compromised by its relationship with the Tory party. What was your view of it in the time that you were there? And was being left-wing with a left-wing background a problem, not a problem? What? Well, so so my, my you know, we came from a Labour family. I wasn't very tribal after the ch- after childhood, really. I, I was kind of, I never joined anything, really. I, I wasn't really into that. Um, I did work for a Labour MP, Paul Flynn, who was a great guy. Um, and I was, you know, I was I was keen to see the back of the Tory government when I was, when I was you know, 20 or 21 or whatever it was. That was good. Um, in terms of so so in terms of the BBC, uh, so when you know, I, I was at ITV for a long time, which we and also you know, you wouldn't know it with GB News and the like, but actually other broadcasters apart from the BBC have to think about impartiality, including ITV. So impartiality was something I just got in. I really loved impartiality because I love the idea that we're just going to follow the evidence and we're not going to be swayed by our own particular perspective and try like as if as if I would like want to, you know, use the the platform to sort of sort of further my own ideas i mean that's a completely alien notion to me really so so i was into that so and i think that's what most people at the bbc try and do i think it, so it comes to your question about where does the center of gravity lie politically there i think the truth is it's in the in most people it's slightly center center left um you know i think really a little you know in terms of most not not, not necessarily senior people um then there are sort of prominent people who have background in the, in the Tory party that you mentioned or allude to but I actually sort of think you know it was there when Labour when New Labour were in and it seemed like New Labour would be there forever you the, the revolving door was to New Labour I think people people who are into politics in working BBC Westminster tend to be quite interested in power potentially and have and crossing the line to the other side um, and that means and they might be quite agnostic about what that means in terms of the actual politics of it they might just be interested in being part of it so you know and I was talking to Owen Jones about this and Owen Jones was saying, was asking me this question. And um, he suggested that if Jeremy Corbyn had won, there wouldn't have been any, any, you know, any travel from the Labour, the BBC into the Labour Party, gov- the Labour government. I think there probably would have been. I think there probably would have been people who thought, well, well, this is, an, this is interesting. How do we shape this? You know? So I just think it's not as simple as, it, as funnily enough, as, 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 as they always, as people always make it out to be who see it through a partisan prison themselves in a way they impose on us I'm not there anymore, but they pose on other people, a kind of partisanship and, uh, you know, which is not actually necessarily present in those people, but it is in the the people who are doing the observing. But what about when you're there, when you were there, did you ever feel as if the management of the BBC was was 
perhaps either giving the government an, an easy ride, not holding it to account, perhaps issues as, a, you know, the, the thing that everyone talks about, obviously, is the experience of BBC staff and contractors during the 2016 referendum. So um, I think there is an issue, which is incumbency bias. So I think that I think that when, particularly on the news side in politics, the danger has always been that the people that can give you access, the people that can give you stories, the people who can give you big interviews, are the government and they matter they just matter more to you than than the opposition does until you reach you might reach a tipping point when it sort of becomes obvious as we may be about to get to here i mean in the you know in the uk right now that um that actually the the the, the patronage of the opposition might be more important to you than the government as they disintegrate or whatever but i think that's the danger so you you end up i mean there, there was some there was some i don't know if you saw a piece in the guardian back in march which was fascinating which was there were some messages that had been um had been on WhatsApp and things that had kind of come to light, which seemed to, and it wasn't by any means comprehensive, so I couldn't speak to it being necessarily truthful, but it was interesting in these messages, you had messages from the government being filtered to the staff about what words would be appropriate to use, and those words were the ones that were used. So there seems like a direct, on the face of it, a direct link up there between government intervention and output. That's quite worrying. Um, so I think it does happen, that, but it doesn't mean there's like these, you know, the idea there's these kind of Tory sort of, you know, these Tories inside the BBC trying to make it, you know, push a particular editorial line. I don't think that's correct. No, and to be fair to the BBC and to anyone who had a public role during COVID, that was an extraordinary time in which people didn't want to get it wrong. And yes. language was so important when you effectively had a, an almost literal captive audience that you can understand how... If the government is saying to them, this is a time of international crisis, please don't use certain words. You know, that's arguably the government may have abused that relationship. But you can understand why people inside a public service broadcaster might uh, go along with it. Yeah, you can. I suppose it's interesting that, you know, I think that in this case, it was the word lockdown was the, was the problem. Uh, Sky News and others didn't. They used the word lockdown. Lockdown was the appropriate word. So, um, yeah, I, you're right. You're absolutely right that that. That was a particular time, and I think we shouldn't extrapolate too much from it. Um, however, I do think there is a kind of in inevitable truth to the idea that you just listen more intently to the powerful, and and that's and that's dangerous. You worked on various shows, as you say, Sunday edition with Jonathan Dimbleby tonight with Trevor McDonald, and then at the BBC Question Time, Newsnight, Breakfast. Just thinking of Question Time specifically, it feels like that program has changed a lot, not just since the days of Robin Day. But even within the time of David Dimbleby and, and even within the time of Fiona Bruce, do you still watch Question Time now? And either way, do you think the changes have, have been positive or negative? So um, the first thing to say about that is my, 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 my involvement with Question Time is fairly limited. So I, I was I was I was it's made by an, an independent production company. And at a certain time for a very short period, I was kind of the. The, the link person between that independent production company and the BBC. And so that, uh, you know, uh, people higher up than me would say things and I would then pass them down. It was even though it was, so in other words, I wasn't very influential on it. So I, I, I to be honest, I was never the, I, I loved the Robin Day days um, as a kid. I, I sort of didn't really like it very much after that, really, if I'm honest, personally, only because I didn't really think, you know, it's that kind of thing, that sketch, that Paul Whitehouse sketch, which are the bankers and the bonuses and the bonuses and the bankers. You know, it, 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 it just became like that. And I just sort of thought it's like, it's so easy for, I mean, part part of the thing I think about all of this is, 
we as citizens, right, we have a duty as well. It's not just down to politicians. It's like a civic duty for us to do the hard work and the hard yards as well, right? It's not enough to just like reflexively just moan about things and not come up with any solutions or support any compromises. So that's the kind of thing that bugs me about it. So, um, and actually, to be honest, I don't really watch it now. So, um, but look, um, you know, I think I think people like it. I think it has its moments. I don't want to criticise it. It's just not really my cup of tea. No, and I just wonder about the change in terms of the personnel of people who are invited on it. You know, even people like me have been on it a couple of times, and I just wonder if actually that's obviously a mistake. <laughs> if question time <laughs> shouldn't perhaps be a bit more, but whether the door policy needs to change again and it'd be more about holding politicians to account rather than being oh. a broad panel discussion with various different types of people yeah i, I actually i actually kind of agree with that really i thought but it's been going a long, long time that i mean I, I mean i think uh it was back in the 2000s probably i mean there was the thing that annoys me is i talk about the same book in relation to the, the axiom on the record it's almost like the point was reached in the 2000s where people at the bbc thought you know God, politics is kind of over. It's it's kind of boring. Like Labour just going to win every time, and this is and you know there's going to be no real controversy. We need to spice this up a bit to keep people interested or connect it to their real lives or something. And they sort of there's a loss of nerve about the fact that basically it, politics is politics, and it may go in peaks and troughs. But by God, it's going to come back and with roaring back, which it did. You know, we had Iraq, and then we then we're into the into the austerity. Then we have Brexit. You know, so. You know what I mean? It's like that's it's born of that sense that it's a bit boring. I mean, I don't, I don't think you should make political programs if you think politics is a bit boring. You should probably do something else. Um, no, so no, totally that's yeah. and also, how do you and it, it, as someone who loves politics, and obviously we're in the same boat here. I didn't find the new Labour era boring. In fact, I've never found any political era boring. In fact, I find chaos deeply troubling, and I find it deeply tedious as well. I get that people are more likely to tune in around something like Iraq, Brexit, Trump, or whatever. But those things I find really um, stressful to go through, and I don't enjoy watching people just endlessly argue about them. I never understood why, uh, or perhaps I'm wrong, but you know the problem that we're describing is in a period of New Labour where actually you had a really mature conversation about how do you improve the country and, 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 a, yeah. and a government that's actually really open to ideas and new ideas, why that wasn't harnessed in broadcast media as more of a positive thing, I, I always found slightly baffling. Absolutely. And it's, and it's weird now. It's like, what, where's the conversation about the education system? Yeah. Where's, where, you know, where's the conversation about the health service? Really? It's a bit at the margins. You're seeing some things being said by, by West Street and they're interesting. And some of this is happening, but you know, uh, I was always into having those conversations. They're, they're about people's real thing. They're real things in people's lives. And they're, they're really important. We, this was the bread and butter of the politics we used to grow up in around the the eighties and the nineties and the emergence of new labour and all of that this was absolutely central. Somehow, we're not talking about it. It's almost like there's just another shinier, more scary thing to look at, and and we've lost interest in the things that actually count. The Andrew Marr show stood almost um, as a lone voice in an era where TV shows seemed to be anything to do with politics. The basic formula was get two people from you know either the left and the right of the Labour Party and let them have a fight on either Question Time or Politics Live or get a pro-European Tory and a, and a Brexiteer Tory and let them argue on one of these things. The Andrew Marr show seemed to resist that trend. We Did you ever have to sort of vocally resist that to um, you know BBC people or, or did they just understand that that was the way you guys wanted to make that sort of show? No, I mean, I inherited a show that, you know, lo <coughs> excuse me, long established. So it wasn't, I don't think there was a great appetite for, uh, for change there um, I don't think there was any pressure to change it um, but um, I think 
you know, Andrew Marr is just such a sort of genial, clever, likable person. So that I think he creates an environment where you're going to have conversations rather than a, a sort of heated argument. Um, and all I tried to do was bring to bear, because I kind of came from this LWT tradition of, which goes all the way back to Brian Walden and to Weekend World and all that, which was, you know, the forensic interview. Um, and what I tried to do, I mean, I was actually in a, I was actually at an event with uh, Andrew Marr. He's leaving the BBC. And, um, uh, you know, David Cameron's there and um, uh, uh, Tim Davies there. And Tim Davies makes a speech and all this. And then Andrew makes a speech and he goes to all of his editors. and He's had, th he had three editors uh, and talks about their different approaches. And he said that when Rob came along and he thought my interviews were shit, um, which was which was an exaggeration. But he did say, but we made the interviews better. And, and, and so what I tried to do was, you know, just inject a bit more forensic policy based you know sort of stuff into the program not too much you don't you know at nine in the morning on a sunday you don't want people having a massive argument but you about politics but you want to just get a bit further than we were getting by the way i mean i invented politics live so i should take some of the blame for that if, if blame is indeed uh, appropriate i wouldn't i would i would defend it oh no i don't think there's any blame i, I think it's more um that it's the panel discussions obviously are often very enlightening but I think the last time I was on there, I was on with like a left-wing Labour people. And you, you think I get why you you can't have two people from the same persuasion on there. You need to have that kind of rainbow, but the danger is is that it, then it is you're set up to kind of a, a lot of political television now feels like you're booked because they've got someone who opposes you, and that's why you're on. And I think that's not always a pleasant experience as a panelist. And it's also not what you're there to do. Somebody cares about politics. I don't just want to argue with Corbynistas all the time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just no, think, I think, I think political elements of political broadcasting have kind of got stuck in that formula because it's easy, it's quick, the clips go viral, and, and they basically become addicted to that sugar hit of it. I don't think there's yeah. any sort of malice behind it. I just think in the end, I don't enjoy then taking part in it. And and these are the sorts of programs I should be watching all the time, and I, and I watch them less than I ever have. It's interesting. I mean, I, it's hard for me to know. You know, I don't know when you were on, but um, you know, I actually didn't. Didn't want to set that up. Um, um, I actually tried to do different things. So, one of the early shows I remember we had Michael Michael Lewis, you know, the the guy, the American guy who wrote the who's wrote the um, you know books about about finance, like about what's the Big Short or something he wrote, didn't he? You know that. Yes. He, 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 and he came from a totally different perspective to a conversation about the NHS in which he was able to just inject like I can't, you know, in my country this would be unthinkable kind of stuff. So I I think to be honest, it's it's in the production. It, the easy thing that happens if you haven't got enough staff and the BBC being cut back severely uh, is that you sort of, you just do that kind of formulaic thing of like, well, they're going to oppose each other. There's the party spread. I was always interested in just slightly trying to mix it up and be a bit more and use the opportunity to have conversations that were a bit more substantial. Um, but then again, having said that when I did it, there was probably the optimum moment of that, which was accidental in a sense in that we didn't really, we didn't talk about this happening, which was when Will Self and Mark Francois were on together. Uh, in what became the stare off, which was, which was a you know it was a moment that basically essentially so Mark will you know so obviously absolutely emblematic of the kind of metropolitan remain massive, and then you've got um you've got Mark Francois the kind of like little Brexiteer you know so they're sort of up against each other, um and they just apparently they all they were already arguing before they um went onto the set, apparently about who had the bigger penis was actually apparently the argument what. Um, yeah, that's right, and it's in the book. So I asked I, I, the producers who were there. So that's one, you know, that was the kind of level of sort of uh, macho chat that we're having before they went on. Then they went on. Nothing happened really for about 
35 minutes between them and then ultimately they they started talking about Brexit and they kind of locked horns and then it became an actual stare off a bit like a sort of weigh in at a boxing match. Um, but the thing about it that I was sort of I, I was OK with was I sort of thought it was real in the sense that what it, it absolutely kind of expressed that division in society between people that people who felt so angry about where we'd ended up or so angry about others trying to stop them do what they wanted to do because they'd won their referendum. But I sort of thought it was quite revealing and, and and it would be bad if it happened every day but it, you know it's one occasion in, in in sort of numerous programs um and then they carried on after the program actually and, and and there was a bit of threats threats of actual violence which didn't materialize thankfully and who do you think would win in a fight between will self and mark that's francois? a really good question probably francois i mean he's just he's just a little bit it's, it'll be a little undercuts you know into the belly because i think will's got he's got a good he's got a good talk but has he got the has he got the game yeah, and Francois, even though he was in the TA, and we laugh about that, he'll, he'll have picked up some tips. Yeah, he'll know something. And I think in the end, uh, you know, our will just belongs in a salon on a, on a shade's lounge, really. <laughs> so obviously it's long-form interviews that are your real passion. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that they're basically not on telly anymore? Bad decisions by, by TV executives. I mean, it's just... But it's is shocking, it cowardice? Is it a lack of interest? Well, I mean, so you know, there was a show. Do you remember there was a, there's a, there is a show now called the Andrew Neil Show. There was a show on BBC Two called the Andrew Neil Show, which yeah. the way that came about, and this is a classic thing about the, the BBC, was that so if you remember, um, Boris Johnson had a very uh, uh, entertaining encounter with Andrew Neil in the Tory leadership contest in 2019. Right. Yeah, all about Paragraph Five B and That's Paragraph Five right. C of the GATT. Yeah, yeah. The GATT Treaty. Um, this was planned. We planned this. We we know that he liked. We knew that he liked to talk about paragraph B. We suspected he wouldn't know what paragraph C said. It was uh, such so a we great danced moment. him. It was it was uh, it was my favourite moment. We danced him down the road to paragraph B. He's happy as Larry. He starts grandstanding when uh, Andrew makes a slight slip of the tongue. He's like, you know, focus on the detail, Andrew. He's, he's telling Andrew Neil to focus on detail, but um, he's so. The hubris is so extreme. And then he just says, do you know what's in paragraph 5C? And after trying a couple of answers, he then says, no. Yeah. So this was, you know, this was a brilliant moment. And and by the way, when I've talked about this before, people say, oh, it's just a gotcha moment. You know, is that just a gotcha moment? No, no it's not a gotcha moment for the sake of it. Like, you know, how much is a pint of milk? It's, 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 um, it's actually revealing that this man who we suspect is deeply superficial is actually deeply superficial. And then that's really important when he's saying, I want to be prime minister because I'm across the detail and we won't have a no deal Brexit that will harm the country. So it's quite important and quite revealing. Luckily, Tony Hall, the, the DG at the time was watching this program. And um, after it finished, he rang up Andrew Neil, who'd, who'd, who'd gone to the South of France by now, because that's sort of how he rolls. And, um, and he, and, he, and he was chatting to him and he said, look, I loved it. It was brilliant. It was so great we have you at the BBC. And Andrew said, well, I'm not really doing very much at the BBC. This week had been axed. Um, the uh, politics live, he only did one day a week. And so at that point, this is how it works. We'd sort of got to him direct through the gatekeepers and made the argument, if you want that, you need to, put a, to provide a show. And, we, and they did. They provided a show. Andrew Neil's show on a Wednesday night, seven o'clock. Uh, did really well with the ratings, uh, got good guests, you know, important interviews like the one with Keir Starmer about the pledges that is now regularly replayed. And there was a commitment to it. However, once the opportunity arose post-COVID, they axed it. Why did they ax it? Principally because of 
objections by schedulers of BBC Two that this was going, this wasn't going to rate as well as like factual entertainment shows or whatever it might be in the week. We understand the BBC needs to need to care about ratings, but surely the BBC of all organisations, if it's there for sort of market failure, allows you to go to the BBC and get this thing that's important to society. Should have resisted that, but instead they they rolled over and then they off they offered Andrew Neil sort of a cursory replacement. Didn't have a home, didn't have a channel, didn't really know if it ever happened, and he, and he ends up walking. Um, so that's what I'm saying. So we had one, right? So there was one, uh, and, and and they decided it didn't matter, uh, and no one's replaced it. So the BBC does the Laura Koonsberg show, which is obviously the heir to the Andrew Marr show. Uh, not massively dissimilar, but probably you know, it's very much a kind of series of quite short interviews. There's no commitment on the BBC to a forensic interview. At Sky... Beth and I, Beth Rigby and I were working together and we're, we're doing that on a Thursday night and trying to keep the flame alive. But it's so important. I can't tell you, you know, I mean, Brian Walden believed as he would, but as someone who used to be in the in Parliament, that there was no, there's no, nothing was as good as the television interview that lasted for a long period of time that was forensic to test the character, the aptitude, the policies, all of those things of whoever it was that wants to lead you or run a department or whatever. Um, and we've gone from that to no programs like that and to a disdain on the part of people like Dominic Cummings or whoever it was that decided they shouldn't do that interview in 2019 with Andrew Neil and Johnson, that they don't bother. In fact, you know, Boris hides in a fridge from uh, from GMB. And that's where we got to. Because that's the sort of arc of the story of this book, really, that is we've lost something very valuable. Also, the individuals matter. You, you mentioned some very talented broadcasters there. Beth Rigby, Laura Koonsberg, of course, Joe Coburn on Politics Live is also excellent. Mm-hmm. Andrew Neil really is a, a an exceptional political broadcaster and a phenomenal forensic interviewer, as he has been for <laughs> a couple of generations. But he possesses something very special, which is most people watching him are aware of him, fully aware of his politics, and, and it mm-hmm. doesn't bother them. And he has a particular yeah. way of, I think what's so special about him is he has a number of gears and tools at his disposal and he will deploy them usually at the most appropriate time. And it can be warm and friendly, can be funny, can be inappropriate, but he can be absolutely, he can turn in a second if he smells bullshit. And I think yeah. there is a, an air of authority and quality about him that I think is so rare globally mm-hmm. in broadcasting that he mm-hmm. he's just... I would want to watch him every night. And actually, I, I disagree with telling people who think that wouldn't rate well. I actually think it would rate well. I think it might take time for people to find it and get used to it. But he interviews people in a way that is completely electric. Completely agree. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's it's baffling to think that the BBC let that slip through their fingers when they had it. You know, I mean, and also, apart from all of those gifts which you eloquently outline, you know, the argument you can make as the BBC when you have that man in, on your on your channel, right? You can say, look, this this idea that the BBC is full of a, one, a mono sort of vision of kind of lefty politics and it's going to sort of just do you over because you're a Tory. It's de- demonstrably false. When here's a man of the right who comes on and treats everybody the same and they, the politicians, the people who hold the purse strings effectively for the, for, for the BBC would be seeing him all the time and they'd be going on to his shows and they'd, you know, they'd watch his shows and they would know that this was a, this was a serious commitment to what impartiality is actually about and yet they let that slip through their fingers so it's it's yeah it's extraordinary to me really so yeah he's a wonderful thing and um he's luckily he has got a show on channel four but yeah 
that well done channel four but we, you know the bbc should never have let him go and what do you think are the, the key ingredients to a good quality political interview it depends on what the um oh, there are different types so i mean andrew is absolutely at his very best when he was prosecuting somebody okay so you know i mean one of the things that i tried to introduce into the into the interviews i did was a concept which i slightly portentously called what is the truth right so you're trying to approach every interview what is the truth of this situation not not some ill thought out kind of series of questions without any any kind of thematic kind of coherence and um not just some sort of reflexive oh they're all lying what's the dilemma the politicians in you know maybe they've got a policy which is effective at the margins but fails at the fails at its absolute essential thing so andrew neil could take that and through that prism prosecute that argument um but sometimes you want to do something different um so brian walden and mrs thatcher i don't know if i'm going to talk about this but it's a very important part of the book but um they had a relationship on screen as they did in real life which was about opening up conversation and he could make her speak about the things she she uh, thought about in, in a very vivid vivid way and and so that for example victorian values emerged from an interview they had uh, the good samaritan only was remembered because he had money was something she said to him on television because he'd sort of it was an intellectual coming together of people who were interested in ideas so it wasn't actually that prosecutorial until the very last interview they did where he did prosecute her and actually um you know ended well helped to end her political career so there are different types so i think you know there's those there's the, the polls there and then there's the, and, and these people can do both of these things but there's those polls and then and in between there are sort of different ways of skinning the cat and do you think you have to effectively react to the guest? You know, it's almost like a parent can't treat every child the same or, or a teacher can't treat every pupil the same. It, should the, Is it also true of political interviewers that, in a way, you are reacting to your guest? You can't get dragged too far from who you are and what you're there to do. But obviously, interviewing Boris Johnson is a different prospect to interviewing, uh, say, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, of course, because but that, and, and that really comes down to then I mean, you shouldn't be surprised by it, right? Because it's unlikely you're going to be surprised because you, you sit down with a politician who's normally tight-lipped and they suddenly just kind of kick their shoes off and start just saying it like it is. That's unlikely to happen. If it does, great. Um, but it probably won't happen. Um, so you're not going to be surprised, but it's really about strategy. So as I mentioned with the, the example of the 5B5C, that was about saying, where does he go? He always goes, he's, even though it's like difficult to interview him, he's not that sophisticated, right? It's bluster, accompanied by a set of pre pre sort of cooked lines which he's already been delivering in every studio or every sort of microphone he can for the last however many weeks so it's just about allowing him to make the mistake as in the case of that or to going to the right the place he always goes to and having a plan about how to deal with it you know you've got to have a plan you really have got to have a very detailed proper plan and really work it out to succeed with political interviews because you know most of them most of them aren't very good, are they? Most political interviews, and especially when they're only seven minutes long or something, you know, you won't get anywhere. So, and you say, you know, in a way, do you have to change it based on the politician? I'm afraid most of them, I can only think of like Michael Gove, is anyone I can think of of the current lot, who you might be surprised by in terms of what he's willing to say, depending on the mood he's in, he might just not be able to resist any, a bit of intellectual engagement. Uh, and when that happens, actually it's much better for him and for us and for everybody. Um, most of them, though, you know, they seem to just, especially with a short interview, just have the classic kind of repeated on message lines. 
But when you're planning a longer one, and let's take that Andrew Neil Boris Johnson one, because that was fantastic. I mean, really, in that period of time, there were three interviews on telly that I thought were incredible. Emily Maitlis, Prince Andrew. Yeah. Andrew Neil Boris Johnson, and then Andrew Neil Jeremy Corbyn during that election. And, and I think they were all fairly close to each other. They were a few months apart, and they were just absolutely phenomenal television. So when you're planning Andrew Neil versus, say, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn in your planning, obviously you've got the, the plan for, you, you know he's going to go on about GAT, subsection mm-hmm. B, whatever it was, and, and yeah. then thinking of subsection C is a really neat way to, to kind of deal with him. Are you also thinking about beginning, middle, and end? We open with this, then we go on to that, yeah. and then we have to end, you know, and what, what do we end on, how important the ending is? And then do you have a plan? Almost it's like a sort of football manager, isn't it? You've got your formation for when you're in possession, but but what do you do when you're out of possession? Like, Do you, yeah. do you have a plan for, say, look, if he tries to drag you here, don't follow him, return yeah. to the question, or if he does drag you there, go with him because he'll make a fool of himself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, all these things, they, these things happen, they should happen. Um, so... And taking back to that LWT tradition, for example, there's a thing that I never understood what the word meant until I got there, which is up some. So at a certain point, you've gone down a certain road for a certain period, and then you stop and you sum up, which is just that in reverse, what you've learned. Brian Walden was a master of this. So let me stop you there. I've established this thing and this thing, and that is now the framework through which we explore those things. Everyone knows, everyone's understood what they mean. So now we're going to explain them. And we're going to go into them again in a bit more detail. So that so so he had a plan. I mean, the, the Walden plan, I've seen one of these things. They are amazing. So he has a plan, literally on paper. If I ask question A, if the answer is one, two or three, whatever the three or four options are, we follow down a tree from there on all the subsequent questions that flow from that. So it's like a it's like a flow diagram or a kind of family tree sort of shape thing, which he would then be able to because. I mean, some of his staff felt he might have had something like a photographic memory. He could internalize that uh, and reproduce it in the studio. So so that's the most highly um, sort of technical version of that. That's kind of the, is that the Pep Guardiola version? I don't know. That's the sort of, you know, it's, it's that level of detail, that level of this slot's here, this slot's there. Um, having said that, of course, like in a football match, you know, there is the battle plan and there's the battle. And often that's going to go, it's going to, it's going to go out the window. Um, but you still are fundamentally, you should be fundamentally attempting to demonstrate a few things. Let's say, what is the truth? The truth is this, this aspect, this aspect, and this aspect. Our aim is to try and reveal to the viewer that those, where, you know, the truth of that and the fact that this politician is perhaps inadequate on this one, perhaps halfway there on this other one, hopeless on the third one, whatever it might be. And then at the end of it, the ultra, the optimum up sum would be a sort of, well, viewers can conclude X, Y and Z from this uh, prime minister. And that was sort of that was the Walden way and and, and the Dimbleby way, which I did with, on the Jonathan Dimbleby show. We did that. And to, I mean, Andrew Neil's slightly different. His is on paper. He's written it out. It's, 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 it's literally a series of questions on paper with evidence supporting each, each assertion. You know where to go. Uh, so that's So, yes, it's highly detailed, highly planned. Andrew Marr. Just, you know, wasn't doing that before I was there, became very adept at that. He he would have in his head a sort of trigger. So we'd go, I do turn the book. We had interviewing Theresa May. We had like four or five concepts in our that we'd discuss in prep that would trigger off a series of questions. Um, so yes, it's it's a highly, done properly, it's a highly technical um, and complicated procedure, which should be able to get you through from the beginning to the end. 
And when and let's take let's keep using Andrew Neil Boris Johnson in 2019. Yeah. Uh, at the end of that, did you feel that the plan had been executed effectively? I mean, in a way, that was the that's the 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 most successful plan that we ever came up with that I've, I've ever been involved with. You, you, you know, you, in fact, there was a precursor at the very beginning of the interview. We know that he said whatever the question was, he would assert how great he was because he got crime down in London while London mayor irrespective of the question obviously the question that we asked i can't remember what it was but it wasn't about that um but we prepared for that because we knew he did it so we asserted well you say that but actually crime came down by more in all the other parts of the country at the same time as so that you know that that was a tick we, we'd established the bullshit then then we did the gat thing and then whatever it wherever it went from from there on so in a, in a way that was the most successful interview i've ever worked on in the and actually shows that the sort of oh we can't stop we can't deal with the boris interview is, is wrong you can There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss so when you're watching as a producer andrew neil interview boris johnson or andrew marr interview whoever are you do you ever speak to them in their ear yeah all the time i mean i mean there are some who there are some uh presenters who refuse talk back uh which is usually evidence they're usually the worst interviewers because they don't they don't um want to take help from other people so that it's too much of an ego thing but um i mean andrew neil it's well one of the issues with andrew neil with andrew neil is less necessary because uh, a he's andrew neil b um he's got a piece of paper with a list of questions on in front of him whereas andrew marr didn't want to have a list of questions in front of him because he uh he didn't want to he wanted to be able to look in the eye of the interviewee and sort of listen to what they're saying and kind of make connection so that would therefore you might just you know you may just press talk back and say stick with that or what did they just say or Ooh, you know, even this little hints, the little, little hints of something interesting. Yeah, oh blimey. Ooh, that, did they, did she mean to say that? Um, you know, and then and then they may then have missed that, or they may, you know, because they're so caught up in the plan and there's the battle happening. And so it's 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 a massively important part of the the armory. I mean, I mean Emily Maitlis, I don't know if she had talk back for that amazing Prince Andrew interview, but you know, she would always respond well to talk back on Newsnight when I work with her. She's a great, I mean, she's a brilliant interviewer, but um, it's not, it's, and this is not to say these people require help or some kind of puppet master. They just are mature enough to know that I can step back a bit from it and speak to them and help them. Yes, that's right. When you're the person doing the interviewing, you're in a far more claustrophobic relationship with the guest. And yeah. and really, you're, you're listening to what they're saying. You're, you're, you're spinning a couple of plates at the same time. It's crucial to have another person there with a wider view, just chipping in. I, I, in a way, you've answered what was going to be my next question about the nature of the intervention. So obviously you don't want to talk too long in their ear, but would yeah. you ever say, actually, the Shadow Chancellor didn't say that, or uh, the Environment Secretary um, uh, said something different this morning? It, w- would you give them sort of factual help as well? Yeah, I mean, so it might be, yes. I mean, there's a couple, one thing to also think about, which is that you can only do it when they're not talking. So it can only happen when the interviewee is talking. So by definition, they're missing what the interview is saying by virtue of the fact you've interrupted. So you, you know, so you don't do it lightly, but you may say, I don't know what it would be. Um, 
let's for example, I don't I don't know if it's happened. It may have been after. So there's a moment in the book about Penny Mordant, um, who tells what I call the Turkish pork pie to um, Andrew Marr during the referendum campaign when she insists that the UK would not did not have a veto over uh, you know putative membership of the EU by Turkey when we know that it definitely did um, and she, she even maintains that to this day she did an interview when she ran for leadership in 2022 and she said that she stood by this thing that's not true but anyway all I know I'm, just, I'm using this example I don't actually think this quite happened but it might illustrate the point so David Cameron was on the other side um, on uh, uh, the Peston program, which is on, on on the same, I think overlapped slightly. So they would be watching the, they'd be watching the show uh, that we were doing, and then then that would be reflected in the Peston show. So it may have been, if in theory, we'd we press say, Cameron's just called that a lie, or Cameron's disputing it, whatever it might be, just enough. For him to work out what you meant, because he'd know that he was on the other side. So it's that kind of thing. So you have to be sparing. But yes, you can get quite important information across. I mean, because the danger with that is if you say Cameron says it's a lie and she goes, well, where's he said that? <laughs> You've then got to well, go I mean, ITV just now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you do actually. And you might do that. But it might, you know, if we're any good at this, we would have had a conversation that said, look, Cameron's on the other side, on Peston. I'm off. If anything important is said, I will tell you what it is. Great, you know, that would be anticipated. That's such a good system. And, and would would they have little um, ways of letting you know they'd heard? Would they sort of give a little nod or a little, um, yeah. you know, tap yeah. of the finger or something? Yeah, a little nod. Because so if you're if you're, I mean, maybe a nod of irritation of like, yeah, all right, Rob, shut up now because I've heard you say that. You don't have to say it five times, you know. But because the cameras, obviously, the cameras, there's a camera on the interview all the time, even though what you're seeing on the television obviously is just one is, is a mix. Um, so you can look at that and make sure he's registered or he or she have registered it um and then and then you know you're, you're okay now you mentioned brian walden a few times and him and thatcher what's fa- i mean there are a number of things fascinating about him one of which is that he had been an mp how crucial yeah. do you think that background in politics was for him or, or more to the point for his guests do you think as a result of having sort of been part of that world they were more likely to open up to him yeah i think that's a good a good, a good question a good point i think i think that that's that's right. They were. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher. I'll come to her and, and him specifically. But I mean, Brian was was renowned as a great orator um, in in his in his fairly brief time in the in the Commons. But he never really. It's a funny thing. He never really, despite that fact, he never really settled there. It wasn't for him. And he was one of those people who'd be tipped. Be, you know, in those those magazines that tip people to be prime ministers who never become prime minister. And um, he was one of those. You know, in 1967, he was like, you know, will this this working class boy from West Bromwich will he become? Labour's you know, prime minister in the 70s. And of course, he never did. Um, it's interesting why he never did. Um, just to answer your point, by the way, yeah, I think that gave him a credibility. It gave him a sort of, and he had he had, he had a, a heft about him that was that was acknowledged. And also he did actually, dem- he did actually use at times, because actually in a way, there's a big difference between parliament and TV, but he kind of used some of the techniques of, of parliamentary language and discourse to kind of bring a certain lyricism to his questioning at times um but the thing about him that i find fascinating so he's he said that i i i was labored because it was in my mother's milk right he came from a very poor background his mother died quite when he was quite young his father was often unemployed and he made that journey from grammar school to oxford to parliament and he was going to be labor but he became aware of the fact that he wasn't really a socialist he was actually a meritocrat 
he believed, as his own experience had sort of shown him, he believed in equality of opportunity more than equality of outcome because he'd sort of done it himself. And that is why it wasn't such a leap that when the 70s, when as the 70s starts to unfold and Labour becomes more, you know, to the left and it becomes more and more in, it, trapped by its relationship with the trade unions and their militant militants, uh, as he saw it, um, he, he, he was actually became quite factor curious because he saw her as a sort of vessel for the politics that he believed in, really. And she came, she'd, she'd taken a very similar journey, le a less dramatic climb in the class system, but still, you know, she didn't come from a wealthy background and she'd become a, she'd become a, a, a grammar school girl who'd become a, a, an Oxford graduate. So he saw that in her. And, 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 and if he, and then, then, then there was an intervention, which was London Weekend Television. I had this show called Weekend World, for reasons that I don't know, really, I haven't been able to quite establish, just, they decided to approach him when Peter Jay, who was the original presenter, left to become the uh, British ambassador to uh, Washington. They uh, went for Brian and, gave, and said, Look, Brian, they, knew, uh, they must have known Brian was disillusioned with politics and, and they gave him the opportunity. So he becomes the, the lead presenter with no experience of Weekend World in 1977. And his first guest is Margaret Thatcher. Um, and they begin a conversation that then takes place over the course of the next 12 years, really, on television. And it's really fascinating watching those old interviews between them. She, you know, she didn't come out and say, uh, we've got to deal with union power and we've got to break the unions or anything like that in a kind of in a, in a, in a blunt way. She danced towards this position that she then took on fully in the 80s. Just, just as an aside, Matt, I just want to say it's it's ironic when we see Liz Truss in a kind of Thatcher cosplay, dressing up as Mrs. Thatcher, getting on the tank, when she she sort of claimed to be the sort of uh, heir to Thatcherism. And she had an idea, right? She had a big idea, Liz Truss. Whatever you think of it, she had a big idea. She avoided scrutiny in the course of that leadership campaign. She did not go on to major interviews on major TV programmes. She just did Tory hustings. She, didn't, she did the opposite of what Mrs. Thatcher did. Mrs. Thatcher saw the media as a place where she could talk to people about her ideas and where she, where she could lay the groundwork for these ideas and say, you know, we need to revive this country. This may be difficult, but right. Liz Truss did none of that. It, again, it comes back to why this interview, this, this, in, these interviews are important because they, they test the metal of that stuff. Right. So if, if she'd done that, she maybe could have taken the country with, I mean, it's debatable, but she maybe could have taken the country down this road. But anyway, Mrs. Thatcher, she went down that road with Brian Walden, uh, you know, in, in the late 70s until she becomes prime minister and into and into government as well. And the really interesting thing, which is fascinating, having seen these interviews, a lot of them at the time, particularly the ones in the 80s, is just how close they became. They became friends and they became ideological bedfellows. He would go to number 10 and they'd have a glass of whiskey late at night in the flat above number 10 and they would chew the fat. No one really knows what was said in those conversations although he was quite indiscreet to people like Andrew Neil who was then the editor of the Sunday Times um, about what they talked about but they were very close but the really amazing thing that came out of the book is 1983 um do you remember Kenny Everett yeah of course the comedian yeah big Tory supporter yeah so 1983 okay I want you to come with me to a, a Sunday in June of 1983 the, the Sunday before polling day okay sunday before she's coming back to the country and saying give me a second term let's finish the job and mrs thatcher has done an interview that morning with brian walden in downing street brian walden the big interviewer itv live from downing street 
That's the first thing she does. The next thing she does is she heads to, to Wembley where the young conservatives are having a rally. Uh, you know, Jimmy Tarbuck's there. Steve Davis is there, you know, um, and, and also Kenny all Everett. The cool who walks on, all the cool people, you know, I mean, she probably thought she probably had no idea who they were. Kenny Everett, who was a, a gay man from Liverpool, not your average, not what you'd imagine would be in that setting, walks out with a pair, well, with one enormous sort of um, foam hand on, right? right? Yeah. Like an evangelical preacher sort of thing, pointing to the sky. And he says, let's, let's kick Michael Footstick away. The crowd completely, the, the crowd are like, oh, this is naughty, but this is funny. They'll laugh their heads off. He says, let's bomb Russia. So they go absolutely crazy. And they can only get crazier when then the shout comes out of Maggie, Maggie, Maggie. And Maggie, Margaret Thatcher, appears on stage with, with Kenny Everett. She is seriously pumped up by this event, right? She is really excited. She feels this is not what Tories normally can do, reaching these sort of people, the young people, whatever the truth of her support with young people more broadly. And the third thing she does that day is she goes to record the very final party election broadcast of that election. She goes to a, a, a house where they set up a studio, a setting in, in, in London, central London. And her, her, normal, her, normal, her normal speech writer and uh, broadcast writer is there. He's written a very mellow, reflective plea to the country to vote for her on Thursday. She hates it. She's so pumped up. She wants something completely different. So Ian Gow, who was a, an MP that worked closely with her, was, was given the job of finding someone else to write the script for the final party election broadcast. And who does he think of? Brian Walden. And he actually asks Brian Walden, will you come? And Brian was in bed. He answered the phone. He was in bed. Will you come? tonight, I know it's very late, and come and do this thing, which is to write her last appeal to the country. Now, you'd think, Matt, with, with journalistic ethics, the answer to that would be a resounding, thanks very much, but no. But he did it. He got up and he went to that place and he wrote this script, which is mind-blowing. Um, and, and this has been rumoured rumored before, but I've been able to establish that Brian did tell Charles Moore this, that he did do this in the course of their conversations from for Charles's uh, biography of Mrs. Thatcher. So that's how close they became. So the man that's going to then go going forward, continue to hold us to account, has actually written the words that make the plea to say re-elect me, which is, which is by any standards, a, uh, you know, a completely inappropriate thing to have done, but demonstrates how close they were. But then, you see, it gets better than that, because what happens next is that he continues to interview her, and then in 1989... Nigel Lawson resigns as her chancellor. This is the biggest political crisis she's ever faced at that point. And she's committed to doing a 46 minute interview with Brian Walden. In the run up to that moment, and she obviously she didn't back out like, you know, Boris would have done or Liz Truss. She, she did it. In the run up to that moment, the, the talk in the sort of Westminster and media bubble was, will Brian Walden, who's so close to Margaret Thatcher, will he really deliver the moment of reckoning that, that is required at this point when she's lost her chancellor? because she chose a, an advisor called Sir Alan Walters really over him. And everyone thought he wouldn't. And it was like, there's a piece in the Independent that, that weekend saying he's not going to do it. He's a bottler. He won't do it. And he had a choice. And I talked to the people that helped him make that program, the producers, the executive producer, and they, and they, you know, they had different views, but his closest colleague, David Cox said it was a choice. It was a dilemma. He felt very close to her. Was he going to deliver the interview that was required that day? And, what would she expect from him? She probably didn't expect what she got, which was a, 
an absolutely bruising encounter. But not only did he absolutely expose her, the inadequacy of her answers about Nigel's, Nigel Lawson's departure, um, but also he suggested that she might be slightly off her rocker, that she might have gone a bit mad, which is the kind of thing people said in the country in those days, but no one would say on telly. It was deeply insulting to her. And, and it sort of was the beginning of the end. And the two never spoke again after well, that. Well, that's what I was going to ask is what did it do to their relationship? You just answered it. So, and do you know, are there any records about how she felt after that? They, they may not have spoken, but did she speak to other people? Did she record any thoughts about him? There's a guy called Woodrow Wyatt, who is again a Labour, uh, an original Labour peer who, who, who kind of went to the right and became a Thatcherite. And he's got a, a slightly unreliable uh, set of memoirs or kind of a diary. And he talks about the conversations he had with her afterwards, mainly about his own anger at Brian, who who um, he'd spoken to before the interview and got the impression from Brian that he would be gentle with her. Um, so uh, I think we don't have on the record stuff about what she said, but we do have the sense that that through Wyatt, that clearly it landed with her because the response to it was pretty extraordinary. You know, the front page of the newspapers had transcripts of the interview on the front page. This, and for me, as, a, as I say in the book, I was in, I was in Nottingham at university at that point. I was age 20 years old. I'm watching the telly. And finally, this woman who dominated our, my political kind of life up to that point, finally, there was a moment where there was a chink in the armor. There was a vulnerability. There was a sense that she might not be there forever. And a year later, she was gone. And so it was, it, you couldn't miss the significance of that. There's no way she could really have missed that. Obviously, they had a unique relationship. Do you think in a way, because he knew her so well, he instinctively knew her weaknesses and, and, and how to exploit them, that in a way, he was the best person to deliver that interview that, that of course other interviewers would have exposed at that time because as you say Nigel Lawson had resigned and the, the country was in the yeah. way it was and, and her leadership was in the position it was by by 1990 but nevertheless it could really only a blow that devastating been delivered by someone who had in a way that level of proximity to her I think so because I think for two reasons first of all because she didn't expect it I mean I write in the book I try and imagine the mind their minds he sits she's sitting there it's Brian it's not Walden it's Brian he's my friend he understands me. He'll do some stuff on this, this stuff about the, you know, about the resignation, but he won't make that the only thing he does. Um, so she probably went in there with a false sense of security, first of all. But secondly, he, he delivered things. So he said things to her that she knew he didn't think in reality. So, for example, he, he, he talked about her being an overbearing person who wouldn't listen to any other arguments. And she's sort of saying to him at points, you know, I like an argument. She's almost like she's in a way at one point she says, you're being you're the one that's being domineering and almost like why can't we just have a normal conversation brian what's going on it's like there's a palpable sense that she's just this the dislocation between because obviously if it hadn't been brian she would just have been on you know she would have been on her guard but she wasn't quite on her guard and when he said that he knows brian you know i'm not like that so it's it's an extraordinary moment of personal sort of betrayal um so yeah i mean it delivered what it delivered and it's an, it's an extra it's on youtube you can watch it it's it's recreated in the book it's pure drama and what is the lesson then for political interviews from that? Is it to get to know politicians a little bit so that they um, open up a bit? Is the lesson for politicians actually never become too close to an interview because however close you think they are, they will always get you in the end? Um, is there anything the industry can extrapolate from it? To be honest, Matt, I think it's I think it's a it's it's some kind of unique moment that, can, that, that it's like a it just ha all the other it's like 
all the elements had to come together to make that as magical as it was. You can't, by and large, I don't really think you should be too close. I, I just think it's a bad idea. I, I always try to avoid it myself just as a backroom person, not to get, don't understand their predicament too well because then you'll be too sympathetic towards it. That's not what the people demand you do. So I don't think it's it's wise. Clearly it delivered this extraordinary drama um, that we only sort of know really now the, the depth of, um, but I just don't think you can sort of recreate that. It was just unique. Well, that is advice for all budding and current interviewers. Rob, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. And your book, uh, why is this lying bastard lying to me? <laughs> obviously, it's, I mean, it's a great title, obviously. It's a famous quote. Is it, is it from a particular politician? It's not from a politician, no, it's from an interviewer. And is so, it from someone specific? Yeah, Jeremy Paxman. Well, sort of. So Jeremy Paxman, on, here's the thing, on the very night, on the, very, the day that that 1989 interview happened, that same night on Channel 4, but there was an episode of a show called The Media Show about the, a feature about the death of the political interview, which had become redundant and ridiculous by that point because we had just seen that it was alive and well. But um, on that, and Jeremy Paxman is interviewed. Um, he features heavily in the book because I work with him. He he um, he's interviewed in that in that program, and he says that he would always keep in his mind when interviewing a politician a quote from a guy called Louis Heron, who was a former uh, deputy editor of the Times, which was he would wonder in his head, why is this lying bastard lying to me? Uh, and that's actually become a sort of, in a way, a um, uh, the reason I used it as the title. It's a good title, right? It's it's a, it's a brilliant title, but it does it does it does speak to this dilemma. You know, is that the right approach, or is that you know negative, whatever it is? So it it, it sums it up. So weirdly, on the same day as that happened, the 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 quote about political interviewing was delivered on the same day. I guess in a way, you do need some interviewers who have that mindset. You need a variety of different. The public requires different types. You know, the Today program. We know they've only got a couple of minutes and that demands that they interview them in a particular way. And on Newsnight with Jeremy Paxman or Emily Maitlis or whoever, they have a particular brief that the public needs to you know, see visibly satisfied. But then I guess what we're both in agreement on is there also needs to be another place for long form, um, not just uh, interrogations, but long form interviews that also reveal character as well as concentrate on policy. Yeah, I think I think what you can't have is what we've got now is is we don't have the long form political forensic interview really. What we do have actually, and you're doing it now, and we have it on podcasts. Is podcasts have I love them because they have demonstrated that people actually like depth, um, and and you can you do and you can bring out those kind of character points with politicians. And it wouldn't be appropriate for you to berate them about their policies or whatever. So that's a really valuable part of the mix. I think what's the problem for me is if we have that on the one hand, then we have seven minute interviews and we don't have anything that's the the long form interview, which is really what it's about, the most important and most valuable. Because if as long as you have that, you can then do what you do and others do with on podcasts like political thinking and things, which is have a deeper conversation, which I'm all for, but I just think it can't be at the expense of a proper Andrew Neil style, Jeremy Paxman style interview. Rob, the book sounds fantastic. I've put a link to it so people can just click on and buy it immediately. Uh, this has been so fascinating thank you so much thank you matt cheers well there you go rob burley and you can click on the link and buy his book why is this lying bastard lying to me searching for the truth on political tv by just clicking on the link and buying the book and it is obviously i have a particular approach and and maybe i was um not trying to get tips, but it's interesting figuring out how other people interview politicians and what their plans are. And obviously it is 
you know, each medium really is different and, and it requires a different type of planning. Um, so it's interesting hearing how Andrew Neil, Andrew Marr, Beth Rigby, Laura Koonsberg, Emily Maitlis, how people like that plan their interviews um, with their producers and, and all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So that was uh, that was uh, that was just so much fun. Um, so don't forget uh, the guests at the live shows are as follows: on Monday the fifth of June, former Tory Chancellor Philip Hammond; on Monday the nineteenth of June, former Foreign Secretary, former basically everything, Margaret Beckett; Monday the third of July, Joe Lycett. And oh, please do. I always forget to say that you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, but please do leave a five star written review. Tell your friends about it, spread the word far and wide, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.